I'll be reading today from Romans 8, verses 1 to 11. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'll give you a minute to do that. But I often find it helpful to just close my eyes and listen to the word being read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. If any of you have Bibles that have um, sort of illustrations, graphs and pictures in them, you may have one of those timelines that you'll see in Bibles that actually sets up where certain things occurred in um, history, in Bible history. And that can be quite helpful. You want to find out when was Isaiah preaching and, you know, what happened during the reign of King so-and-so and how far long ago was that. And, and so you see the, the timeline. And so it just shows Bible history in a straight line. Um, other people think of the Bible in perhaps more 3D terms when they try to picture what the overall picture of the Bible is. And uh, I remember one thing that was helpful to me when I was in theological college, we did a subject called biblical theology, which to me was one of the best subjects I could do, because it just showed the picture of God's plan of salvation, starting from day one at creation, right through to the book of Revelation. And one of the lecturers said it's a bit like a picturing a, a big arch that stretches right over Bible history, a bit like a coat hanger or the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I'm from Sydney. A big arch stretching right over Bible history, the whole timeline. And he said at any point in that history, you should be able to drop a line from the arch down into the timeline and say, well, what does that part of Scripture have to teach us about God's plan of salvation, <clears throat> God's saving history? And that's a helpful way of thinking of the Bible because it means that anything that occurs at any point in history is part of God's revelation and God's action to bring together the world that he's made and to bring people to himself. But another picture yet again of the Bible that I found helpful is um, one that several theologians have used in which they've seen it more like one of those topographical maps where you see sort of lowlands and sometimes even land that drops below sea level, 
and then gradually climbs through the foothills and gets to a mountain range. You know those sort of maps you see? And one particular writer that I've read uh, sees scripture in that way as one way of picturing it because he said, once you get to the New Testament, you've stopped being on the plain, on the level ground, even though there have been a few hills and bumps along the way until you get there. He said the ground really starts to climb once you hit the New Testament because Jesus has landed. Jesus has come to planet Earth. God has set foot. He's taken human form. Pardon me. And as a result, big things are happening. And so we start to climb. And this particular theologian I was reading says that the book of Romans is kind of like the mountain range, a bit like the Himalayas of that picture. And he said, uh, chapter 8 is Everest. Um, now, some of you may kind of all have a, a bit of a sense of that already. If, if, if Romans 8 is one of your more favourite reading sections, it is one of mine. But I can understand why that theologian and others like them have, have what they call the Everest principle. That's a principle that doesn't just apply to Scripture. Some people use that else, other ways as well. But the Everest principle, what's the peak, what's the high point of something? And for some people, Romans 8 is that Everest point. And just to quickly summarise, Paul in the book of Romans spends more time writing about the nature of salvation and what the history of God's revelation means for the people of God than he does anywhere else. Right up to the point in chapter 7 where he's saying, the law is not bad in itself, but I cannot live up to it. What am I going to do? And that's why he finishes chapter 7 by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's after he spent a lot of time talking about the nature of sin and that no person in the planet is without excuse. Everyone has failed to live up to God's revelation. Who will deliver me from this body? And then he says, but thanks be to God. And that's the end of chapter 7. But he starts chapter 8 with a therefore. And now you know the rule, don't you? Whenever you, ask, whenever you see therefore in the scriptures, you always ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? Uh, some of you haven't heard that one. <laughs> it means that there's a link. In the light of all that Paul has written and in, in, in his previous seven chapters, mind you, he didn't have chapters, he just kept writing, in the light of all of that, he comes to this magnificent trumpet call at the start of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he finishes chapter 8 by saying, no separation. And for some, that is the peak of Everest, that final assurance But it's not like Paul has just pulled those phrases out of the air and said, oh, I think I'll do something that might encourage my readers here. I'll just drop in a couple of pithy little phrases. He's actually built the whole foundation for that to get to this point. Now, I'm not going to go back and build the whole foundation again. You can read the rest of Romans to do that. I just want to highlight some of the joys that come from Romans 8. And what we find there is Paul talks about a life that we cannot have outside of Jesus Christ. He talks about a peace that we cannot have outside of Jesus Christ. He talks about assurance that we cannot have 
outside of Jesus. And that's why that clarion statement in chapter 8 verse 1 is so strong. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now I don't know what forgiveness might mean to you. Some people have stories of uh, gross sin and depravity and brokenness in their lives that means you know that to come to faith in Christ was a real turning and a tremendous cleansing and renewal but in my experience that's not the regular thing most of us and looking around at this respectable gathering here this morning most of us didn't come to Jesus that way i've certainly met one or two who have and one of my favourite songs that I used to sing many years ago was by an American pop singer named B.J. Thomas, and some of you may know the name. He used to do that song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. He did other songs as well. But his story was one of those, you know, get to the bottom of the pit, what do I do? There's nowhere else to go. I've done everything wrong that I could possibly do. My life's gone down the toilet. I may as well commit suicide. And it was at that point he met Jesus and began the recovery. Mind you, he was instantly healed of his sin, but the recovery needed to be worked on, and maybe still is. But that sort of sense of forgiveness is strong. Many of us may not have that sort of sense of the need for forgiveness. When I became a Christian in my early teens, it wasn't because I felt grossly weighed down by sin. It was basically because I just had a strong sense that believing in Jesus was the right thing to do. The gospel was true. Jesus had died for sins that I'd committed and I couldn't die for them myself. Seemed like the logical decision to make. Now, mind you, the the learning process has gone on a lot since then. But that growth process might be like that for many of us. So we don't always understand the depths of guilt that other people might feel. But the guilt is not something that we feel. You see, when we have sinned against God, when we, as we said in our confession, you know, when we've broken his laws, we've done those things, we've left undone, all that sort of thing, whatever form a confession might take, when we say all that, we are saying in effect, Lord, although I may not feel it on a beautiful autumn day, I'm guilty. But to come to Jesus is to have the guilt removed. It's to no longer be guilty. It's to no longer be condemned. Even though the law condemns those who sin, God's law says the soul that sins shall die. And this is what Paul, of course, has been unpacking in those earlier chapters of Romans. That is what the law is about. It is about showing us what God's standard is and showing us how God has met the standard in Jesus. And that's why Paul can say there is no condemnation for whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who belong to him. Those who have come and accepted his grace, his mercy and forgiveness. Then Paul starts to unpack what it means to live this life, this new life. And he speaks about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. Let me just read some of those verses for us again from early uh, from those early chapters, uh, those early verses of chapter eight. He said, "There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because 
through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. Ah, what does it mean to live according to the Spirit? Well, how long have we got? I'm 72. So... I'm still learning. How old are you? Are you still learning? You're still learning what it is to walk with the Spirit, to listen to God? Are you still learning what it is to be one with him every day? Are you still learning what it is to have his revelation, his grace enlivening and quickening your mind? Are you still learning what it is to be a follower of Jesus? It's not because I won't get there unless I try harder. I know I'll get there. He is my goal. He is the one I will see face to face and he will welcome me and say, welcome, Trevor, well done, good and faithful servant. How do I know he'll say that? Because my sins are forgiven. Because that punishment that he took has paid completely for me. There is how much condemnation on me? Zero. None. And I have his life now in me because one of his precious gifts, as well as the gift of forgiveness as well as the gift of assurance that I will see him face to face one day, as well as that is the gift of his spirit. Holy Spirit is a marvellous expression of God. He comes and takes residence in the life of a believer. I still very much remember as a young man listening to a Bible talk given by uh, John Stott from England many years ago. He was preaching through John's Gospel and this particular one on John 14 In John 14, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Spirit to to, to his followers there. And he said, whoever loves me will keep my commandments. And that at first sounds a little bit difficult. But then a few verses on, he said, those who love me, to those who love me, my Father will come and I will come and we will make our home with him. Now I remember hearing John Stott teach on that and being so moved. Do you ever have one of those moments? I hope you do, where something God says, something in the word, just goes right through you and lands deep. When I heard John Stott say that, it landed deep. Those who believe will receive. What? God's life in them, God's spirit, the very presence of God. And John Stott kind of made it a bit more graphic when he said a bit like this. He said, so based on what we're reading in John 14 here, who comes to dwell in a believer? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We have God in us. Now, my friends, if you're a follower of Christ, you have God in you. God's Spirit by the very gift that he has made, is living with you moment by moment. That is what Paul is trying to unpack here in Romans 8. He said, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set 
on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Now, when he talks about the flesh here, he's not talking about just sex, drugs, rock and roll stuff. He's talking about the whole culture of living in a mindset that is absent from God. A world culture that's totally atheistic, I guess. A world culture that's all around us. Let's look at it. Australia, this wonderful nation in which we live, is one of the most atheist nations on earth. It is not a Christian nation, never has been, and probably never, I don't think there's, no, I won't, I won't go there. It's another story. God lives in his people. The presence of God in us gives us a purpose and a way of looking at the world that non-believers just don't have. That is what it is to live outside of that circle of just living in a world of what we might call, well, what Paul calls the flesh. The physical realm that is so obsessed with the physical realm. There are many ways of trying to think of that, but the important thing is to think that we are not bound by that anymore. If we are followers of Christ, if we've received Jesus, we have his life in us. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Well, Jesus' righteousness, of course. The Spirit gives life. We have been made alive. So when this body ceases to operate, function as it ought, and my spirit leaves this body, I have a new one coming. The great hope for Christians is not really just heaven because, you know, the Bible doesn't talk a great deal about us going to heaven I mean, we do. We talk about that as being the end goal. But the Bible really doesn't say that all that much. It talks about us going to the place that God's prepared. But more importantly, the assurance we have is that we get resurrection bodies. We are remade. Now, do I hear a hallelujah in the room? (laughs) We get remade. You see, these are some of the promises. These are some of the benefits that come from following Christ. And they're based on what Jesus has done for us. And those are the things, these are the assurances that Paul's wanting his readers to listen to and take on board. That's why this is such a rich passage to contemplate and spend time just just swimming in, bathing in. Those who have the Spirit of God in them, those who have received the life of God in their lives, have these assurances And my friends, as we have received Jesus, these are our assurances. And as we, over the next couple of weeks, look through more of chapter 8 to see some more of what these promises are, we will see the importance of the two bookends to this chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Chapter 8, verse 39, no separation for those who are in Christ. They are important bookends to a whole passage packed with assurances about what it means to be filled with the life of God. I really would love the time to sit down and go through this in great depth, but that would take a long time, a lifetime in fact. I want you to do some of that work yourselves. 
I want you to take some time to read slowly through this chapter and if you have other translations at home uh, or just look them up online, Bible Gateway is probably the easiest way to do that. It's a good site. Look up the message, read what uh, Eugene Peterson's translated this as, look up one or two others and just get a feel for the way in which this passage flows and the things that are written down here for our encouragement. This is not a passage of condemnation because even when Paul is talking about those who are in the flesh who do not live according to the Spirit, he's not talking to believers as if that's them. He's saying that's what you once were. That's the contrast with the world around us. But he's saying if God's Spirit lives in you, then these promises, these assurances are what sustains you. And it's not by anything we do hanging on by our fingernails. It is the work of God who has brought us from death to life, who will take us from hell to his presence, who has taken us out of judgment into assurance. We have been given his spirit as a down payment assurance of what is to come. Let us walk with the Spirit and listen to him. Let us grow with him. Let us be fed by him every day, recognising that God's life is in us who believe and that we are free from condemnation. For Jesus has set us free. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for living in us. Thank you, Father, for receiving us. Thank you for giving us promises that are rich, guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for your presence with us right now here in our gathering this morning. And thank you, Lord, that your presence is with us now and for eternity. We praise you. Amen.